0: I'd like to begin by talking about something that I get swept up in every year, and my wife is very kind for allowing me to be as into this as I am, and that's March Madness, and so some of you may be like that, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there are games, you know, every week, great time, sit on your couch, do some basketball, watch it, good time. Every year I pick a team, and it never goes well, and so... After I pick a team, and they're out, I pick the underdog, and this year was a great year for the underdog. Many of you who watched the tournament fell in love with this team from Chicago that just kept winning, and this 11 seed, game after game, kept winning all the way to the Final Four. And there was something about this team in particular that I began to notice, and the commentators and everything were picking up on this too, and that was the post-game interviews. Every interview was almost the same. All the players, all the coach would almost give the same answer. And it was, we knew we were supposed to be here. We expect to win. We're surprised they made us an 11 seed. Every round, this winner's mentality. Everybody was telling them what they were doing was this big upset. But to them as the team, they knew that they were going to win and they knew that they were supposed to be there. If you will go to the next slide. And I couldn't help but think throughout Wes's sermons about hope, about being committed to victory, if there was some kind of victory mindset that we're supposed to have as Christians. Is there a direct parallel between the winner's mindset that this team showed in the NCAA tournament? Definitely not. You could pick holes in this analogy all day. But at the same time, I think that there's a victory mindset that is important for us to catch a hold of as Christians. And in fact, it's the perspective that we're supposed to view life with each and every day. And so we're going to be looking this morning at what it means to live victoriously. And if you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to Colossians chapter 2, I'd like to read our text again as we begin this morning. Starting in verse 6. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I'd like to use the first two verses of this section as a charge to our graduates this morning. Uh, I'm not going to lie, a lot of what was written in this sermon this morning uh, was written with our graduates in mind. Uh, but I can tell you that I hope that there's something uh, that will apply to each and every one of us as we seek to live with this victorious mindset. The first two verses. So then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Both Richard and Jim led beautiful prayers about how this church you know, is with our graduates as they go off and as they start into a new path, whether it be college or a career. And this is the charge that we give them to continue to live their lives in Christ, remembering you know, where they're from, remembering their roots, remembering how they were built up in Him, and overflowing with thankfulness. We can't overflow with thankfulness if we don't have Christ on the forefront of our mind at all times. He is the source of this thankfulness. And so this is a charge that we hope to give you as you go out and as you thrive. And our church is so proud of you. I like to tell Mark that I know we have Mission Sunday every year in May, uh, but for us in the family ministry, this is our Mission Sunday because we really do feel like these are kids that are being sent out. No matter where they go around the country, they're going to represent Jesus well, and they're going to represent this church well uh, also. And so be sure uh, to congratulate them. So let's go to verse 8. Some things that Paul gives us to help us maintain this victory perspective. The first thing he says is, Do not become captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I wanted to spend some time this morning breaking down this concept of hollow and deceptive philosophy. So if you will, go to the next slide. I like simple things, um, so I tried to put together a little formula that might help us with our understanding of, of this term that we see from Paul. And I would say the hollow and deceptive philosophy are empty promises plus false narratives. And as we look at some of the empty promises that we see in our world today and some of the false narratives that are being communicated to us all the time, I'd like to call them the what's and the "whatever." So let's look at some of these what's. The what's are tied to something. Uh, you know, we have things like materialism, this idea that if I just had this, then I would... Etc. Or if I just did this, then I would feel, you know, the sense of achievement. Or if I just look like this, then maybe people would treat me differently. Or maybe, uh, people would accept me. And so we find, uh, something that is a promise that is, ends up being empty. These are the what's. And then we also have these whatevers, uh, in our world today. This idea of it doesn't really matter, uh, there is no source for absolute truth or morals or relativism. The idea of ah, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth at the end of the day, whatever. Or maybe it's religious pluralism, your God is your God, my God is my God. In fact, if I want to take a little bit from this and a little bit from that, even better, whatever, it's all good. Or at the end, maybe it's just this chronic apathy, this whatever uh, in mindset, this not thinking about important things, staying at the surface level, just this, continue, uh, this continual shallow living. And so each of us see these what's and these whatevers, and these lists could be so much longer each and every day. Maybe it's through the media, maybe it's in commercials, maybe it's in movies and television. We're bombarded with messages about what we should believe. And Paul tells us where these hollow and deceptive philosophies come from. He says that they come from human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of the world. And so I have three principles that I think will help us to recognize uh, these things around us. And the first is only God can satisfy our souls. This is something that we have to keep in front of us at all times. When things are being brought to us as a solution to a problem that we might have, or it's this desire that we have, we have to constantly be checking, is this desire, is this problem that I'm trying to fix, is my source of the solution God? Uh, one of the beautiful things about being uh, created beings is we have this relationship that can only be satisfied by our creator. Peter Rollins describes this as a God-shaped hole, a type of void in every human being which remains unfilled until filled by God. We can try all we want to fill that void with other things, and ultimately, it's going to be empty. It's going to be hollow. Let's go to the next one. The second principle, godly values and behavior is rooted in godly narratives. We are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories once in place determine much of our behavior without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. Once these stories are storied in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. And here's the main point. These narratives are often running and often ruining our lives. And that is why it's so crucial to get the right narratives. If we have the wrong perspective, if we have the wrong worldview, if we have the wrong you know, false narrative that you know finds its way into our minds. It's going to affect our values. It's going to affect our behavior. It's going to affect uh, our entire person. And so, it's so crucial to always be seeking truth and recognizing truth uh, through Scripture, and not being caught by these other narratives that we see. And the third principle is that idolatry isn't dead. Oftentimes, when we picture idols, we might think towards ancient times. We might think about a culture that's different from ours. But the reality is, so many of the what's and many of the whatevers are tied to the worship of something else, the worship of something other than God. Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Paul uses the phrase captive to describe these things, and captive is a really scary word. Because it's impossible to be free when you're a captive. It's impossible to experience freedom in Christ. The freedom that Christ desires for us when we're being held up by something else. Or when something else has our hearts and our minds, we're not able to think about God in the way that He desires. If you will, go to the next slide. The reality is worship is transformative. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. This is such a powerful thought. It's a really positive thought when we think about how our worship experience, uh, both here at church and in the world, as we seek uh, to live our lives as these sacrifices of worship. You know, it's really cool to think that we can become more and more Christ-like through our worship. But the inverse is also true. When an idol gets a hold of us, it also shapes us. And sometimes it's really hard to notice how we're being shaped by something. And that's why it's so important to have Christian brothers and sisters that can point out to us the things that are shaping us, the things that are changing us, the things that are taking us further from the Christian walk that we desire. And so as we look, you know, at the things around us, as we evaluate the narratives, as we look at the promises, you know, we need to remember who God is and what he desires for us. So as we go back to our Colossians text, we're about to see that Christ offers us fullness over hollowness. If you will go to the next slide. Verse nine and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power And authority. The thing with false narratives and the thing with empty promises is we always think there's something that gives them legitimacy. You know, we don't recognize them as empty at the beginning. We think that there's some power or authority that's going to come through for us, that's going to give us what we desire. But here we see that Christ is the head over every power and authority. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells, and he has given us this opportunity to be brought into fullness. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wes has done an awesome job talking about hope and victory and talking about how hope is a, is a substantive thing. It's not this pie-in-the-sky ordeal where everything is going to be exactly as we wanted and everything is going to go right each and every time in our Christian walk. In fact, you know we know that the substance comes from being yoked to Christ. If you will, go to the next slide. I love the way John Ortberg says this. Easy is a soul word, not a circumstance word. The soul was not made for an easy life. The soul was made for an easy yoke. We're not promised that everything's going to be easy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're told that there are going to be challenges. But what we know is when we're yoked to Christ, that's where the easiness comes. And there's really no more powerful image than the yoke of being, you know, directly connected to Him, of walking step in step with Jesus, you know, being connected in such an intimate way. And that's the type of relationship that he desires for us. John 10.10 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. If it were only this easy. If we only saw it right next to each other like this verse. You know, we've got the thief, all these bad things. And then we've got our relationship with Jesus, all these good things. And right here, when you just look at John 10.10, 10, it seems like a pretty easy decision. It seems like a pretty easy choice. You've got this fullness, or you've got all these bad things that come with the thief. But often in life, it's a little bit harder to tell. And we can get caught up uh, in our day-to-day walk by things that are from the thief. Many times we talk about the cost of discipleship. And there is a cost. There are things that we're called to sacrifice. There are things that we're called to give to the kingdom. But there's also an incredible cost of non-discipleship. And I think we don't talk about this enough. Uh, you know, the best life is the Christian life. The life of non-discipleship is not a fun life. It's not a pleasant life. In fact, it's filled with all these things that we are not intended to enjoy and experience. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation to those who live with him. We've been offered freedom in Christ. and Let's look at how Paul puts it in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised with Christ. We've been given this covenant relationship that allows us to put off the things of the flesh. If you will, go to the next slide. The word flesh in Greek is the word sarx, and it literally refers to a life apart from God, trying to live on my own living in a disconnected state, trying to be the end-all, be-all for myself. It's a life of independence, not of dependence. Let's go to the next slide. But in verse 12, he gives us a way out from this independent life. He says, "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." And we've been given life in Christ over life in the flesh. We could spend so much time here. We could spend so much time talking about how life in Christ is better than life in the flesh. But I'm going to stop because this is actually Wes's sermon for next week, okay? So come back next week. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be talking about what living life in God is like. So come back for that. But verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I don't like debt. Many of you don't either. If I haven't paid something off, it bugs me. It's like this cloud that's hanging over me. It's this something that, you know, I wish I could resolve. In fact, it, you know, takes up uh, an undue amount of my time thinking about this thing that's just hanging out there that I'd like to get rid of. And this is the debt of all debts that we have that God took away from us. He has removed our legal indebtedness. He has removed our sin. He has given us that liberation and it tells us he nailed it to the cross. What a powerful image. What a powerful burden He has lifted off of us. And this is something that should be at the forefront of our minds each and every day as we seek to live victoriously. In your life groups today, we're going to be looking at a story of a person who was forgiven a whole lot and a person who was forgiven just a little. And we're going to see their interaction. And we're going to talk about how forgiveness makes such a difference in how we interact with other people. And the way that we're able to forgive is because we remember how much we've been forgiven. And then verse 15, which is one of my favorite verses. If you will, go to the next slide. Verse 15, one of my favorite verses uh, in all of Scripture. It says, "...and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." I like to envision Paul writing this verse. I think this was a fun one to write. You know, as he thinks back uh, about this story, as he thinks back about all the things that Christ does for us, how he disarmed the powers and authorities, how he made a public spectacle of them. It's just such powerful language. It just shows us indeed how triumphant Christ was and how we get to experience that triumph as well. Chris and I had the privilege of being here Thursday night for Bill Antwine's memorial service. And it was truly a celebration of a life uh, well-lived, and throughout the service, we kept hearing about Bill's life as an educator. It was something that he dedicated his life to, and, and over and over, they were talking about how he served as a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, but then after that, you know, he retired, and he couldn't stay away, so he came back and subbed some more because he loved kids, and he loved being with them, but the thing that was so evident in the funeral was Bill didn't view himself as an educator. Bill just happened to educate. In fact, he was a minister in every classroom that he went to. He knew his job. His career might have been education, but he knew the job that he lived was to be a minister to each kid that came in his classroom. It was a really, really powerful service uh, to be a part of. And I share that story because I think that's the key to the victory mentality. It's taking whatever opportunities we're given and re-seeing them through the frame of what Jesus has done for us. It doesn't matter what your 9 to 5 is. Each of us are called to be the ministers of the story of the cross. And so we're going to end with a passage from 2 Corinthians that expresses this in such a powerful way. If we'll go uh, to the last group of slides. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we, review, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we are once regarded... Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. And here's each of our job descriptions. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful invitation that he gives us to be ministers of reconciliation, to participate in his triumph, to be a part of the victory each and every day. But as I read this last part of this verse, it's also a sobering thought. The phrase, as if God were making His appeal through us. And that makes me think twice uh, about the way that I live. It makes me think twice about the way that I interact with people. It makes me think twice about even the littlest chances that I get uh, to possibly impact someone. And then the last phrase, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's almost a phrase I can't comprehend. That we might become the righteousness of God. How powerful is that? That He has this vision for us that is so much more than the vision we often have for ourselves. I think we approach life sometimes, uh, you know, thinking about it in in just kind of a, a really simple way. When God has this grand story that He desires us to live, and so this morning, if you would like to be a part of that grand story. If you would like to give your life to Christ, to experience that victory with Him in baptism, we would love uh, for you to come now as we sing. And also, uh, if you would like the prayers of this church, our shepherds will be down front or they'll be at the prayer room in the back. Let's come as we stand and as we sing.